few months ago or years ago, I took my family and we went up to Grand Coulee Dam that's located in the central part of the state of Washington. Beautiful thing. Grand Coulee Dam, I understand, is from the bottom to the top of Grand Coulee, 70 stories in height. And it um, gathers the water that flows down out of Canada and stores it there or dams it there. And a dam that in its deep, thickest spot is one-fifth of a mile thick. And uh, this huge body of water we enjoyed as we traveled, as we walked through Grand Coulee Dam to see that magnificent thing. And as you see the water coming over the spillway in Grand Coulee and through that dam itself, you have a tendency to think, what a waste of power that's going out of this thing. Why don't they just, uh, you know, keep it all and make electricity with it? It is true that the power that's generated out of that magnificent uh, dam, those turbine engines that operate in the center of that thing, uh, can supply thousands of residences and businesses and light the entire city of Seattle. But if you want to measure the power of Grand Coulee, you'll need to get out there in your car and drive to some little old town somewhere and just walk into a dark room in midnight and just flip a little old switch and watch a dark room turn to light. For the greatest evidence of power is the evidence of change. If you want to look in Webster's Dictionary and find the definition of the word change, it means to make radically different, to alter and to transform. Now our God has been called the God of power, infinite power. And the theologians have a, a name for Him. They call Him omnipotent, omnipotent God. It means that He has all power and that He has no limitation to His power, that He can do anything He chooses to do. But the evidence of God's power is not in the created order around us. The evidence of God's power, the greatest evidence, is in the change He brings to life. And there are some of you tonight who are Exhibit A, your living proof of the mighty power of God to bring change. There are some of you whose attitudes have been changed. I've even seen that in the time, short time, that I've been your pastor, as I've seen you give your life to God in a full measure. I've seen attitudes change. And some of you have had your whole course of direction and, and the uh, movement of your life has been radically altered by God. And some of you have been caught in habits that are so debilitating and binding and God has just moved in to change you. He's the God of change. The greatest evidence of power is the evidence of the change that comes to be. Now I think it would be a good place tonight to pause at this point and talk in, by way of review. We have said that there is one main theme in this book of Acts. By the way, did I tell you where I was going to read 19, Acts 19? Now, don't, don't, don't miss this little statement as you're thumbing there. So, uh, you know, Acts 19, there is one theme that runs through the book, and there is a main plot in the book of Acts. It's a historical book describing 
the explosion and expansion of the church. But there is a main theme, and that main theme we've said is in chapter 1, verse 8. It's a statement of power. And that statement is, you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the farthest part of the earth. You shall receive power. The greatest evidence of power is change. And you can see the change that came in that early church. As a matter of fact, those disciples who were nestling around in the nest of Jerusalem were changed. And they all of a sudden became evangelists that went out into the world, changed. And we've seen in the book of Acts the radical transformation of a man named Peter, a coward who denied his Lord, an impetuous man who really had no foundational uh, stability in his life, changed to a flaming evangelist. And we came to the ninth chapter of Acts and we found the marvelous change that God took that God accomplished in the life of Saul of Tarsus. And as we came to the 13th chapter, we began to see this man who was so radically changed began to move out into the world in a missionary movement. And that's where we are tonight because we come to the third, to the third um, missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. It took place as he went out and spent two years in Ephesus. And that's where we are in the 19th chapter, verse 8. Now I need to say some things, if you look in your outline, about people in general. About people in general, three things. Number one, people are sinful and stubborn. Now I know what the humanists say. The humanists say that, that man is basically good and he just needs to find how good he is so he can live like it. I say that man's heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And that man is basically a sinner. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. The reason why God had to lay sin upon Jesus is because man was sinful and stubborn. He chose his own way. Second thing about man is that he is attracted and attached to things. He is shot through with materialism. He is a secularist to the core. And there is this root of depravity that's never uprooted in his life. The third thing about man is that he's ignorant and unaware of the enemy. Now what is true about mankind in general is true of man in Ephesus in particular. When Paul got to Ephesus, he found man to be sinful and stubborn, choosing his own way. He found man attracted to secular things, to fleshly things, and attached to them. And he found man woefully unaware of the enemy. As a matter of fact, he was under the control of the prince of this world. I need to say something about Ephesus, about the city. Ephesus was not your down-home Mayberry RFD. It was a metropolitan hubbub. It was a center of wealth and beauty. It was the crossroads of commercial life. It was the center of, of commercial activity for the Asian world. And in the city of Ephesus was erected the temple to the goddess Diana, the, god, the goddess of fertility. And so they had a monument, a statue erected to Diana. 
And just to hear the name makes you think some beautiful woman. But it was a black, grotesque idol, a multi-breasted woman because she was the goddess of fertility who was fat and squatty. And around this statue to the, to the goddess Diana was erected one of the seven wonders of the world. There were 127 pillars, each one of polished marble, each one a gift from a king that stood six stories high. And 36 of these pillars, these columns that were there in Ephesus, were bedecked and embellished with precious jewels. And in this temple to the goddess Diana, you found all kinds of sexual deviation that literally expanded the mind to try to comprehend it. And there were male prostitutes, and there were female prostitutes in the temple to the goddess Diana in this metropolitan hubbub into which the apostle Paul came alone. And he strided into Ephesus with simply the gospel in hand, and he stood alone to preach the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he watched as God began to effect marvelous change by his power. Now, if you were to write a biography of the Apostle Paul, you would probably have a chapter there, I think there is one, a chapter in some book called The Successes in Ephesus in the Ephesian Ministry because there were some surface signs of success. I want you to notice them. There were four of them, and you're in outline number two. There is first in verse 8 this, And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. There was this first sign of success, surface sign. That is, that there was a strong and capable leader who had the power of the, and the freedom of address. Here was this preacher, obviously endowed. And when he preached, it was a, it was a, it was a marvelous thing. It wasn't like the guy here on the radio some. You know, didn't have much to say, so he just screamed, you know. He just shouted louder in some places. I mean, he was, a, he was an intellectual man, and when he preached... People sat on the edge of their seats, not just because he was preaching in the power of God, but because he had these marvelous truths and principles that he was, that he was disclosing to them. He had the freedom and the power of address. And so Paul came in the glory and the power of God to Ephesus. Secondly, there was this vast immediate popularity that attended the message. Look at verse 10. And this took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, I know when you're doing your daily Bible readings, you're going to come to chapter 19, the book of Acts, and you're just whistling right along there, getting your little daily Bible readings done. You pass right over verse 10, and this took place for two years, that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. doesn't say a thing, except this, that here was a man in, in this city of Ephesus, what's happening to me here, did it go out on me, there we go, he was in the city of Ephesus and he preached for two years, is this mic on, okay, we need to cut this mic so it won't give me that back, good. 
And in two years' time, all of Asia heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. An entire continent heard the gospel of Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. An entire continent heard the gospel. Now, um, I wonder if everybody in Durant, Oklahoma, has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. There, there must be something that, that, that could be said about that. There must be something powerful and that impacts here. That, that here was a man preached for two years, and the nation, which is now Turkey, everybody heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, it makes me ask myself, what is wrong now? You know. Number three. There were divine miracles that were being performed in verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. Um, look at what he says. And, and God was performing miracles by the hands of Paul. By the hands of Paul. So that it was God's hand that was upon that Asian world, both Jews and Gentiles. And the Apostle Paul was like a glove on that hand. Um, I wonder if you are, uh, if you, if I can get you back. You know, we, I, we, it was going so great. I wonder if I can get you back long enough for you to hear me say this. I believe that there is no limitation to what God can do in this place or any place if He just had a glove He could put His hands in. I, I just wonder. The, the amazement of it out here at this campus of Southeastern. Not too long ago, some of us guys got on our knees and we claimed that campus for Christ. I just wonder what would happen if God just had some vehicle, some, some instrument, some glove that He could get inside of and control to the point that they would be just like a glove on His hand and didn't stand back and see the glory of God. That's all He needs just a glove for his hand. Number four. There was rapid growth. Look at verse 20. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Mightily and prevailing. Now, the word mightily is the adverb that describes how the word of God was spreading. And prevailing describes the duration of it. It wasn't dying out. I think the evidence of genuine revival is, will it last? Does it last? The evidence of revival is not how many people come down the aisle when that revival is being preached, but when six months later are the people, is that revival prevailing? And the Word of God was prevailing. But wherever you find success, wherever you find God at work, just know that the enemy is always behind the scene. The pressure's not off. Let me tell you, if what we're seeing in the First Baptist Church, and I think we're seeing evidence of a, of a blessing of God upon our life and upon our church, if, the if that is true, if, the evidence is, if I read the evidence correct, and that's correct, then you know this, that Satan is behind the scene and he is at work. And growth requires grueling effort. Now let me look at those with you and then I'll quit. I want to divide them into three. 
the grueling grind of growth backside and look at restriction and reaction as, as, we, as we see it. I want to show you those. Verse 8. There was fleshly re resistance, verses 8 and 9. The Scripture says that there was this process of becoming hardened. The process of becoming hardened. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the multitude. Can you, can you believe that? Now, now here was this mighty hand of God at work on that community, on that world. And there was some within that world who were speaking evil of the way. They had, this, they had these negative people who were criticizing all the time who were sniping all the time, who were cutting all the time. Uh, let, me, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me say, that's the evidence that Satan's behind the scene work. That's the way he always works. And they were speaking evil of the way. And what was Paul's reaction? He physically withdrew. He physically withdrew. It's the first account of some kind of split in a religious organization. I wonder sometimes, when is the pressure so great that you just quit, you quit preaching, and you, you just, you know, you get out of there, you move. I wonder when that is. I think sometimes I've moved too quick. It's some kind of comfort, I guess, to see that the pressure got so bad and the people were so critical and they spoke so evil of the way that the Apostle Paul just withdrew. He just left. And the Bible says that he went, in verse 9, that he went to the school of Tyrannus. Uh, evidently, there was this lecture hall in the city of Ephesus because these Gentiles, these Greeks, love these intellectual debates. And so they had this school of Tyrannus where they came and debated about uh, uh, creation, etc. And archaeologists have suggested that that in the cities of uh, Asia that they'd have these little siestas right in the middle of the daytime from about 11 o'clock in the morning to 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And it's uh, probably true that, that the city went into siesta and the, and the lecture hall of Tyrannus was not being used and so the Apostle Paul just rented it for five hours a day, seven days a week. And he got these disciples together and they withdrew and for five hours he just spoke to him. He taught them in the school of Tyrannus. Let's say just six days a week, five hours a day. For two years, that's 3,100 hours that the Apostle Paul taught the Scripture to these men. He physically withdrew. And he just got together with those people and they began to study the Word of God. It's obvious in chapter, in verse 9, that you can have two kinds of people. You have some that grow and respond to God and you have some that become hardened as you preach the gospel. I've noticed that. You have that in your own family. It's kind of like if you took a piece of chocolate candy and a piece of clay and you put them out on the windowsill and the rays of the sun striking that clay and that candy, some, the candy will melt and the clay will harden. And you know why? Same windowsill, same sun rays. The reason why some is softened and some is hardened is, is because of the constituency of the thing itself. And there were some who were growing as he was beginning to preach, as he taught, and there were some who were becoming hardened to that. Secondly, the second realm of restriction is found in verse 13. That is, demonic involvement. Look at that. I want to show you something. 
but also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Not what they preached, but whom Paul preached. You can't duplicate the original and come out with the original. You come out with a copy. You come out with a, with a, with a phony. And here were these seven men of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, and they were going around adjuring people by Jesus whom Paul preached. Now look at verse 15. And the evil spirit which was in one of these men said, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? I mean... We know the Apostle Paul and Jesus gives us fits, but who in the world are you? Let me tell you something. Phonyism, phonyism even turns the demonic world off. Have you ever noticed that? Phonyism even turns the demonic world off. And so this man with the evil spirit jumped on them and there was this dog fight and they ran out, says the scripture, they ran out naked into the streets. And the result, the reaction was that the name of Jesus was being glorified. Let me tell you what, when phonyism is exposed, the name of Jesus is glorified. Um, not too long ago I heard about a church where the pastor just stood up one morning and he said, I've been on my knees this week in preparation to this sermon. And he said, I want to tell you folks that I am a phony. He said, I have, I, I've got to confess I haven't been walking with God. I haven't been, I haven't been living like I've been preaching. He's laid it out there. And those people didn't reject him. They didn't go away from that place hating him. They begin to stand up all over that congregation and they begin to say, Pastor, what you've said about yourself is true about us. And they begin to confess their phonyism to God. And that church is yet in revival. Number three. The third restriction is worldly, a worldly attachment. Verse 18. Many also of those who had believed kept coming confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. Worldly attachments. They had these secrets. It's what uh, Tozier calls these toys of the heart that they kept going back to. Do you? Do you have these little toys of the heart you keep returning to? And if God were to flash them on the screen behind me somewhere, would it humiliate you? And their reaction to that was that they exposed and destroyed them, all the secrets, toys of their heart. All the secret toys of their heart. Let me say it again. I want you to wake up and hear it. All the secret toys that they return to, they exposed and they destroyed. Now, what is the application? There's two and I'm through. Number one, hardening happens slowly. Slowly. 
silently and sometimes in an imperceptible manner. Hardening happens slowly, silently, and sometimes in an imperceptible manner. And one day you just wake up and your heart is hard. And one day you just it just dawns on you that before just to read the Word of God was to feel warmth inside and no longer. And one day it just kind of flashes into your mind. You know, when I used to hear about people being lost, I, was, I had this burden, no longer. And, and when I'd come to church and we'd sing, I'd just be caught up in it. And, and I no longer feel that way. And, and I no longer am able to weep. I'm hard, I'm cold, I've lost the burning heart. I don't know when it happened. It just happened. Number two. Becoming pliable implies that I have to have a willingness to change. I have to be willing to abandon all my toys. I'm going to say this. I believe with all my heart. God will do anything in your life you're willing for Him to do. Let's bow and pray. Father, the reason why some of us do not change is because we're not willing to change. Sometimes we answer, I'm just not ready yet. And yet we're tormented and tortured by the fact that we're not what we need to be. Oh God, I pray that you'll make us willing to be willing for you to change us, to demonstrate your power in our life, to make us new. And I pray tonight that you'll call to yourself those who will put themselves in a position for you to effect radical and revolutionary change, even new birth. This is our prayer in Jesus' name and for His sake. And our invitations are like this. One night I was sitting, getting ready to preach in a little mission in Detroit. Preacher leaned over, two, three ladies came in, sat down, preacher leaned over and whispered, so those three girls that came in are go-go dancers. They're prostitutes. I looked down at my text that night. It was Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. I wondered if I really meant it, believed it. Our first invitation tonight is for you to come and put yourself in a position so that God can change you. Scripture says He'll make you a new species of being. He'll completely radically revolutionize you, change you. But you've got to be willing to give up your toys. So the first invitation is for you to come and say, I want Jesus Christ to come into my life and I want Him to bring about that revolution, that change. Second invitation is for you to come and join the church. 
because you believe God wants you to put your life here and serve God in this exciting place. Or the third invitation is for you to come and say, I want to give my life in rededication, a brand new commitment of my life to the Lord, to walk with Him and live for Him like I meant to when I first was saved. Slowly and silently and imperceptibly, there's been a hardening coldness. I want God to come and renew me. Would you do it? The way, easiest way to do it, the first word, if you come on that word, that's the best one. So we'll sing together. Larry will lead us, and we'll invite you to come right now.